0: Welcome back to the show. You are listening to Talking Your Way to Change, the podcast that educates you about optimal mental health and psychotherapy. I am the host, Dr. Banker, and I'm coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I want to thank all of you listeners who have been coming on this journey with me. I am now venturing into the second season. This has been a profound learning journey as I learned to navigate the podcasting industry. Although it has been challenging, connecting with other mental health specialists and diving into the psychological research allows me to fill my own cup. If you are enjoying Talking Your Way to Change, thanks for tuning in. Please consider subscribing to the show. Subscribing is one of the ways for me to reach broader audiences. Also, if you think the content is worthwhile, share it with a friend. I am practicing my social media skills, and you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Now, let's get into today's episode. Hi, welcome to the show, Talking Your Way to Change. This is your host, Dr. Banker. In this episode, we will be talking about one of the form of treatments available to people who have trauma called EMDR, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. I'm so excited to have Rebel Gustafson here today to talk about this very intriguing therapy. Rebel is a licensed independent clinical social worker serving families and individuals in Maple Grove and Minneapolis areas. She has experience with depression, bipolar traumatic experiences, grief and loss and low self-esteem and anxiety. She also works with post-traumatic stress disorder and stress management. Why am I so excited? Well, if you ask me what I thought was the most curative factor in therapy, I would say hands down the therapeutic alliance. And within this alliance are the shared goals, tasks and bond. have with your therapist. The bond is what we think of when we think of the relationship. Much of this relationship is about having new relational experiences that influence our lives, hopefully in positive ways. The experiences that you have with your therapist are not just stored in your explicit memory, the information that you could recall, but in your implicit memory. Implicit memory is where your experiences are that are often outside of your awareness are unintentional ingrained in your body and any associated feelings. EMDR eye movement desensitization reprocessing is a treatment model based on a key tenet that relates to the importance of implicit memory and mental health. EMDR helps people identify these dysfunctional are stuck memories, stuck implicit memories that are not fully processed and that works to reprocess them. So when I think about the concept of healing, it makes a lot of sense to me that implicit memories are just as powerful as the memories that we could actually describe in words. Welcome to the show, Rebel. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, I'm so excited. Could you share with us how you became interested in EMDR and where it fits in your toolbox as a therapist? Sure. Um, I first became aware of EMDR
1: early in my career. However, I didn't feel I could afford the cost of the training, so I kind of set aside the idea of being trained. And then in 2014, I had the honor of working with clients that had specifically experienced or witnessed the death of someone close. And most of my clients seemed to meet the criteria for um, acute stress disorder or PTSD. And I realized how triggering it was for the clients to review their experiences through talk therapy. And I also um, saw that they weren't getting any better or getting any type of relief. So. Um, And another thing is I noticed that the clients would report things to me like, oh, I know it's not my fault, but I still feel that way. Um, And so I began researching other ways to work with traumatic grief and PTSD. So I did end up reading Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, And I realized that talk therapy alone does not bring the person out of the trauma and into reality. And he also shares in his book research on how trauma literally reshapes both body and brain. And um, the book also explores effective uh, mind-body treatments, um, one of them being EMDR. So the story goes, I ended up getting trained at that point um, and it fits into my toolbox nicely. I uh, focus on holistic re- approaches in working with the brain, the mind, and the body,
0: yeah, um i've I've read that book too, the Bessel van der Kolk's book, and it just is amazing. Um, so I would recommend to anyone listening who's interested to check out that book. Um, so it sounds like there is always some interest in EMDR early on in your career, um, but some realistic barriers. Um, But then as a clinician, you were really kind of open enough. And I would say courageous enough to see the limits of talk therapy or what you're providing um, with PTSD and traumatic grief, and then pursued the EMDR training. And now listeners and myself included are fortunate enough to learn now a bit about this from your training and experience. Um, And I just really want to say that I can't thank you enough for agreeing to do this interview. So maybe we could start with, can you first define what EMDR is?
1: Absolutely. And again, thanks for uh, having me on your show. So EMDR is an evidence-based and nationally, nationally recognized therapy. It's administered by a trained clinician. And it effectively heals trauma um, and other things, such as overcoming performance issues or overcoming um, other troubling aspects of one's life. And EMDR uses something called bilateral stimulation. And that can be in the form of side-to-side eye movements, alternating eye movements, or it can be taps on the sides of each body or tones in the ears, And it's used to reprocess disturbing memories or significant events in one's life that continue to affect them today. So the bilateral stimulation or eye movements, along with mentally accessing the memory or the disturbing event, along with the emotions, it unblocks and unprocessed memories. It releases pain, um painful emotions and sensations, and allows the brain to let go of the beliefs that holds one back. Um, The memories may seem to fade away or they're just properly filed in the past. And I like to say that it gets the brain to know it is a memory that one has already survived.
0: So a couple pieces here, one of the pieces that I wanted to pull out that you said is that EMDR is not just limited to trauma. Um, It sounds like it could be used in other areas. Um, Mm -hmm. And so one of the questions I had was how would someone decide, or I was thinking about this topic in general, how do people decide whether or not that their issue is, it was traumatic or... Um, And it maybe sounds like whether or not you want to define your experience as having been traumatic, that EMDR still might be a fit for you. Um, Do you run across that with people in your practice, kind of wondering about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. A lot, you know, a lot of times um, I'll have folks that come in for anxiety or depression and they haven't even realized until we start talking that they've had some things in their life that have happened that have caused them so much distress that they show up in their present day life. And so, you know, trauma is defined differently for every person. Um, I guess I like to define it as um, when past events kind of show up in your everyday life and it feels like it's happening presently in your
0: body, in your emotions, and in your thoughts. Yes, I, I, I like that definition as well. Um, the other thing that I was hearing you say about what EMDR is, is it's a treatment uh, that it's like a process that is addressing your emotions, your thoughts mm-hmm. and beliefs, which is similar to psychotherapy, but it's really also processing body sensations,
1: I think. Absolutely. A big focus is on um, body sensations um, because... You know, they're also stored um, when ev- they're attached to um, events that happen in your life, body sensations are. So we focus a lot on
0: that. Yes. Okay. So, and then in the next question, I was thinking it would be helpful for us to sort of look a little bit about maybe the neuroscience behind EMDR. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so just maybe geeking out a little bit with that. And then maybe after that, maybe kind of wondering how you would describe it to a client so that, um, like, we might go in a little bit more detail today than you might if a client was in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll try to geek out with
1: you. Okay. Um, so the way I understand it is the adaptive information processing model represents the general model used in EMDR to explain the neurobiology of how the brain and body are impacted. There appears to be a neurological balance in our brain's information processing center, and that actually is the cerebral cortex of your brain that allows information to be processed to an adaptive resolution. So essentially, what is useful is learned and stored adaptively, with appropriate emotions and feelings, and is available for future use. Also, um, there are memory networks or neural networks that are associated systems of information, and they hold memories, thoughts, images, emotions, and the the body sensations, and they're all linked to one another.
0: Okay, so let me just stop you for a second. So. Our knowledge about memory now includes this concept of memory networks. And, Mm -hmm. and so the, and these networks, uh, essentially hold the totality of the experience that do you mean like the, what we had referred to before is like, okay, I have a memory that includes my body sensations, my feelings, my thoughts, and they're all and, may, and maybe similar experiences then are stored in then that memory network.
1: Yeah, yeah. the the, the theory is is that um, that's where experiences get stored. And when I talk about experiences, it's um, you know um, thoughts, feelings, body sensations, and um, and in everyday circumstances, we process them out. Um, um, but if something significant happens, they get stuck there. Does that answer your question? Yes,
0: yes, yes. Okay. So we, so we have, then, then where do we go with this? We know that we have these memory networks. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah. And so when someone does experience uh, psychological trauma, it appears, there appears to be an imbalance that may occur in the brain's information processing center. And it could be caused perhaps by changes in neurotransmitters, adrenaline, um, and the fight-flight impulses that we have. Um, So due to this imbalance, the information processing system of the brain is unable to function. And the information acquired at the time of the event, and I'm talking, you know, I'm including images, sounds, um, emotions, body sensations. Um, they're maintained neurologically in its disturbed state. It's like I said, they get stuck. Mm -hmm. So the original material that is held in this distressing state, um, it can be triggered by a variety of like internal and external stimuli and expressed through things, um, symptoms such as nightmares, flashbacks, and intrusive thoughts, but also um, symptoms related to anxiety and depression. I just want to say that as well.
0: Okay. So let me stop you here. In the episode that I did previously, I alluded to some of this kind of sense of getting stuck where I just talked about, you know, when we're in fight or flight, that parts of our brain are um, activated and parts of them are sort of dampened down. And I'm, and I think this is sort of that general area that you're talking to that we have these experiences, but if something Mm -hmm. really, is, um, at a level that we can't quite cope with, or we need, we're in that fight or flight Mm -hmm. that the way that we process that event is different than if it was just sort of a typical everyday experience that we're having, you know, simply put is
1: all of us have distressing and disturbing events in our lives from time to time. And in normal circumstances, the the brain processes these events during sleep or other ways, such as talking to a friend or loved one. And then we make new connections. Our brain makes new connections, discarding some of the information that's unimportant and transforming the negative thoughts, feelings, and body sensations into lessons learned. So it it's a process that helps us adapt and survive. However, sometimes an event is just so significant enough or disturbing enough that it just overloads the brain, like we were talking about, and it prevents, um, it prevents us from, you know, our brains from completing these memory processing tasks. So instead of the memory, so instead the memory gets stored or stock, um, along with, you know, all the physical sensations, the negative emotions, and typically thoughts and beliefs, negative ones about ourselves, And these these are all triggered and repeated often every day in our lives. Um, these memories um, are considered stuck or unprocessed, and they showed up, during seemingly unrelated situations or areas of our lives when we're triggered or reminded. And um, for example, you know, a person's at work and all of a sudden they see a man or a woman that looks much like a teacher who embarrassed them as a child. This may trigger um, negative emotions of fear or embarrassment. It may trigger feelings of shame and thoughts that, um, that, you know, the person's not good enough or they're stupid. And so, um, so then there's the reactions of getting nervous or panicky while you're at work or maybe even irritable and having trouble concentrating, um, and not doing your work as well. And so this is how it shows up in your everyday current life, this past experience that you've had.
0: you work with someone or what would that look like if you're working with someone using EMDR therapy in that example you just gave?
1: Yeah, so um, they would present in my office with having um, some work performance issues at work. And um, eventually we would um, get to uh, the target, the past memories that are affecting them today that relate to their work problems. And so through EMDR therapy, I would have the person access the disturbing memory of the teacher um, by identifying an image, the emotions, and the body sensations, and a negative belief all, all associated with that. And the EMDR reprocessing would unstick that memory and everything associated with that all those sensations, and the brain would come to an adaptive resolution about the memory, such as um, the teacher was just having a bad day, or this teacher general generally was bad-tempered, and said these things to other students, kind of thus concluding it it wasn't personal, and the child was not to blame for that situation. So, you know, the, once once an adaptive resolution would be uh, the the person would come to an adaptive resolution. The EMDR therapy process would then focus on that adaptive resolution and pair it with a positive belief or cognition that the person would like to believe about themselves, such as I am good enough, I am smart enough, I am intelligent, it wasn't my fault, and would pair it with the, the previous memory And feel that felt sense of that positive cognition, that adaptive cognition, and then and that would clear, virtually clear that memory so it wouldn't feel like it was happening in the present moment. Does
0: that make sense? It does. I mean, one of the things that I want to dive into a little bit is that EMDR sounds so similar to most psychotherapies. But when I listen and what I've read about it is that like one of the things that's really different is that there's a portion of the therapy that you, I think it's called um, desensitization reprocessing, that it's almost like it is like doing a little bit of physical therapy in there in the mind or something that (laughs) there's like this step that like if you don't have training in um, which I don't, I don't do that part. Like, as I, as I listen to, I am like, yep, I do that. I do that. I do that. And then there's this one piece that it does seem so powerful that makes it so, um, strikingly different, I guess. Um, but maybe what we could do too, and, um, hopefully this isn't painfully Mm -hmm. too obsessive, but, um, (laughs) maybe if you would just sort of say the, I understand that EMDR has a protocol and maybe just flushing that out a bit. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, um, there, there are eight phases to conducting, um, EMDR therapy and, um, and three of the, the first three phases are completed before you actually get to that reprocessing, desensitization and reprocessing, using kind of the eye movements or the bilateral stim to kind of deal with those disturbing memories. So there's three phases. And so first I start by learning about the client's history and developing a relationship with them. That's so important that the client and therapist have a connection of safety caring and compassion to be able to do this work just like any other therapy I believe and I do want to say when I do take the client's history I don't um, dive right into um, a whole lot of detail I just need an overview because I'm trying not to re-traumatize my client over so that's the first phase And then once we decide that EMDR therapy is appropriate to use, I do uh, the preparation phase, which is just education about what EMDR is, um, informed consent or side effects that possibly could happen during the process, um, and then developing a resource list, and that resource list is actually exercises that are to be practiced outside of therapy to make the client feel safe, secure, and reduce um, uh, them from being kind of dysregulated or overwhelmed. Um, so that's um, the phase two. And then phase three is just identifying the the target memories and experiences that the clients experience in the past that relate to the symptoms and um, feelings that they're having today about themselves. So we spend some time with that, that can take a, um, a couple different sessions. And so um, I, I actually have, we actually identify what we call a target memory and it's related to, um, to what the client's experiencing today, like feelings of um, anxiety and feeling not good enough uh, would be an example. And then the image or, uh, um, or the memory that represents um, those feelings. Um, and then a, a, an irrational belief, like not good enough, or I'm not safe. We We identify all of those things, and then I have the client um, kind of tell me what level their distress is, and we use um, a scale of 0 to 10 for that. And then after we do that, we identify an alternative positive belief. So what would they like to believe about themselves now? So if 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 the thought about themselves is, I'm not good enough, would they like to believe they are good enough or it's okay to make mistakes um, or I'm lovable, whatever. We develop that alternative positive belief during this um, phase. Um, And then um, we make a note of any other memories that come up um, because we may need to process more than one memory. So that's phase three. Mm -hmm. And then um, we go to phase four, which is... Um, desensitization and reprocessing. And that's where we use the bilateral stimulation or the eye movements. And uh, uh, giving that example of the client that experienced um, being triggered by seeing someone that looked like our teacher, I would have the client activate that memory, meaning really kind of get into the memory, what it felt like, um, what the, were the, what were the emotions behind the memory and what were the beliefs about the memory? Like I'm not good enough or I'm stupid. And then we would use the bilateral stimulation or the eye movements to unblock um, that stuck memory. So it's important to say that clients are not hypnotized um, and they're not in any altered state. And um, the client always has control of the process. So they're always able to stop it if it becomes too overwhelming. Um, And so I just really wanted to make that clear. Um, Another thing about this phase is that um, clients report seeing like a film clip or dreamlike images or flashes of the memory. Um, sometimes when I have them do the bilateral stem, um, I have them close their eyes and that's what they see. Um, or they see that during the eye movements actually. Um, or they might just see words or just feel emotions during that processing. Um, there's
0: very little talking. Right.
1: And yeah. yeah, Are they
0: processing more than one memory at a time? Like, because I in the phase before, you know, we sort of they've identified multiple memories mm-hmm. um, during the desensitization. Are you pro- processing multiple memories, or do you, do you just do one? Yeah, good question. We just do one
1: at a time. And so, um, the way I was trained, I was taught to um, work with the earliest or the worst memory. So, okay. um, earliest or first. Um, That makes sense because like if someone was
0: had ongoing abuse as a child, I, it makes sense that you aren't going to go after every memory.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so what happens is, is once that memory, that first or worst memory, is cleared, a lot of times all the other memories that have been identified, all the other experiences um, have been unblocked as well, or it takes very little. To unblock those ones. So we start with the worst or the first. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, And then um, I can't remember if I said, but there's very little talking. And we just really encourage the client to, um, let the brain do the process and do the healing and just notice what comes up during the sets of bilateral stimulation or eye movements. And this is repeated until that, um, until that scale of zero to 10, um, is at a zero or a one, and then we can move on to, um, phase five. Okay. And, um, So, um, and one other thing, so sometimes during the reprocessing, there's things that can interfere with the reprocessing. Um, there could be what we call feeder memories. So other current memories that are kind of coming in to the reprocessing. So we have to stop and we use interventions to kind of compartmentalize those other memories and they're important. We'll come back to them, but we end up, um, you know, having to do some other interventions, um, you know, and that's kind of where we use some of the interweaves that you were talking about, um, just kind of um, using other techniques to kind of move forward. So, so once the, once the um, distress is at a zero or a one, we move on, to looking at that positive cognition that we had identified. We kind of um, determine if that's still the best fitting belief that they would like to believe about themselves. And we install that with bilateral stimulation or eye movements. It's just a different speed that we use. Um, And we install that felt feeling of that belief, that positive belief with the original memory actually. And, um, until that, until the client actually believes that that positive cognition is true. And we use a scale to, um, um, determine that as well. It's a scale of, um, zero to seven. Um, that's what was determined when the protocol was designed. And so once that's done, we move on to checking the body to make sure there's no remaining distress. It's called body scan. And if there isn't any remaining distress, then the session's completed. And we close it with debriefing kind of about the session. And if we need to, we practice an exercise to calm the body. Um, That's typically used if the session is incomplete. So just say... Um, We've done our hour of therapy and we're still on um, phase four. We close the session with a resourcing technique to compartmentalize the distress or to relax um, the mind and body before the person leaves. Okay. Um, But if it is closed, if the memory is cleared, then we go, um, then when they come back, The next session, we do phase eight, which is just reevaluating, kind of rechecking our work to make sure that it really did work. And if it didn't, we go back to phase four and desensitize and reprocess.
0: We just keep doing that until the memory is cleared. One of the things that I'm hearing is that um, about the protocol is that it has a lot of steps, and I'm guessing that that structure is really um, comforting to clients and or the therapist. Um, and I also think that it sounds really comforting that you're only, I mean, it's so gradual or, or it's so sort of contained in terms of how how many memories or traumatic events you're sort of reprocessing, which to me feels um, just really important and um, healthy and balanced and comforting. Um, But I also was thinking that, you know, when I've worked with people who have a lot of trauma, um, that sometimes not that it's so hard for them to contain their trauma that that might cause them some anxiety that they're not going to be able to process more of the trauma. Do you run into that?
1: Yes, absolutely, and people that come in to me specifically to do EMDR therapy want to automatically jump to that phase four and reprocess their their memories that are affecting them today, um, but I, I try to reassure them that, um, first of all, you know, um, we need to kind of prepare them, and they need to be um, somewhat, um, be able to get themselves to, um, a stable and safe feeling to be able to do the EMDR. They have to have some, um, sense of stability. So we have to, we have to do the first three phases. And also I like to reassure them that everything that they tell me is important. I'm taking note of it and we will come back to it. So mm-hmm. if there's multiple memories or multiple events that have happened in this person's life, we take, we take a really good history of that and we come back to those things. Um, and I'd also like to say is that even though there's these eight phases, they can be flexed. Um, in fact, there's, you know, that's, this is for a whole nother podcast, but there's other clinicians that have researched and, um, created different protocols or flexed these protocols, but this is, um, the original, um, protocol. And this is the one I actually recommend. And, um, because the research shows that it works.
0: Right. Makes sense. What what should people look for if they were choosing EMDR as a ther- as a th- form of therapy for themselves? Yeah, I would really encourage
1: um, the client to make sure that the therapist is um, certified or fully trained through an association called EMDRIA. It stands for EMDR International Association. This association has really high standards for thoroughly training the clinician, and it also provides consultation. So, um, it requires that of therapists, um, newly trained therapists to get ongoing supervision and consultation. So I just really recommend that, uh, that the client, um, kind of do their research and, um, The way that you figure this out, if the therapist has been fully trained or certified through Amdria is if they're certified, they are likely um, listed on the Amdria website, but you can just look at the clinician's bio. Um, If you're researching online, you can look at the clinician's biography to see if they use those terms fully trained through Amdria approved resource, um, or certified through Amduria. And so that's how you kind of figure that out. So I'm fully trained. And, um, another term that's used is I've had the full basic training of one and two, and it was about 50 hours of training. And so it's just, a, it, It's important to say that EMDR may, you know, appear deceptively simple to some, but it really demands that high standard of training and experience um, that's involved um, instead of just a two or three day training on EMDR or reading some books on it. Um, So without the training, I think the clinician lacks guidance and support. So I think that part is really important. I also think that it's important when a client's looking for an EMDR therapist, they uh, make sure that the therapist um, has experience working in the area that they're having distress. So just say a client comes to me with issues of addiction or chronic pain um, or phobias, I usually refer them um, out to another therapist that has more experience. And so that's something that a client can look forward for in the biography or making a phone call. Um, so that so that's really important when you're choosing EMDR therapy. The other thing is this, make sure you have a connection with the therapist, uh, make sure you feel safe with them, and that they are compassionate. I think that's really important because this is really hard work that the client has to go through so they really need to trust the therapist those are
0: great suggestions and just to really that uh reinforce that idea of rigorous training i think is is a really good idea and that um people who do emdr have different areas of specialty and to maybe use them selectively Um, what are some resources for emdr for maybe clients if they wanted to you know in their decision making before they even reached out maybe to an emdr therapist is there any place they could go to learn more about this therapy
1: yeah absolutely um you know um books articles Um, That Amdria website um, does have some information for um, clients or people that want to receive EMDR therapy. Um, YouTube has some videos and podcasts, so I recommend all of those. Um, The book I uh, recommend to start with is The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And another book is Getting Past Your Past by Francine Shapiro. And she's actually the one person that founded EMDR therapy. Um, I recommend uh, Getting Past Your Past as an audiobook because there's exercises in the book that the client can practice. Um, another book I found entertaining but very useful in talking about EMDR is a memoir and it's called Every Moment of a Fall by Carol E Miller and she uh talks about or the memoir is about a child that had a traumatic experience and received EMDR therapy as an adult and how it affected her life until she got treatment um so I really like that book that would be a great uh, way to learn too through yeah, another story and it's, uh-huh. yeah and it's entertaining too if you if you're a reader um, some podcasts that anyone can listen to. Um, there's one called Notice That. And they also have a second one called Beyond Trauma. Both of those are by Jen and Melissa. And they, they um, provide exercises that one can practice in the podcast. But they also talk about EMDR and trauma. Um, as far as YouTube you can actually watch a demonstration of EMDR by Jamie Mark. Um, and I'll, I'll just, it's J A M I E and Mark is M A R I C H. And she has a website as well, the Institute for Creative Mindfulness. But if you go on, um, YouTube and search for her, she shows the eight phases, a demonstration of EMDR. She mostly uses um, headphones for alternating um, sounds in the ears for the bilateral stimulation. Um, But it kind of gives you an idea of what um, EMDR sessions look like. And for clinicians, I would just recommend the same um, until you're trained. And then there's different... um, training resources through EMDR that you can continue with. Wow,
0: wonderful information. Um, and I'll just put a note in, I did listen to the podcast Notice That um, by Jen and Melissa. I think I've listened to, I don't know, six or seven of their episodes, and it's just it was really, really helpful. Um, so I would recommend that to other clinicians and or um, clients considering EMDR. What if someone wanted to use some of the science that we have just discussed um, and maybe just processing stress that might have accumulated now, maybe during this time of COVID? Is there anything that you would be willing to recommend for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. And and I just want to
1: interject that, you know, there are many clinicians doing EMDR virtually too. So, Um, I would just, uh, encourage people to, um, contact the clinic and ask about that. Um, because, uh, they can work with a therapist virtually on, on reducing stress and it can be just specifically rated, related to COVID as well. Um, but I would, I would start off with, um, uh, tools or strategies to work with the body because, uh, of, you know, the importance of body sensations and how that impacts, um, our, str- our stress impacts our body. And so any activity that signals safety and comfort in the body, I would recommend, and that could look different for everybody. Um, but a few things that I would um, really encourage is, um, is, doing things that are creative, creative activities, um, because this uh, creativity focuses on the right side of the brain and so it deals with um, dealing with the body and the sensations. So such things like singing or drawing, coloring, um, building anything, uh, baking, and even drumming. on a drum can kind of calm the body and it gives the message to the nervous system that you're safe, you're okay, you're going to be fine. You're, you know, and it grounds you actually to, to the present moment. It's, it's a mind, their mindfulness activities as well. Um, a couple other things that I would really recommend is doing breath work or breathing exercises. And there's lots of tools that you can find, um, uh, online about how to do those, but just, um, uh, making sure that you, um, do all of these things two to three times a day, just like brushing your teeth. You want to develop a habit of doing these things. Um, and, um, and again, I just really recommend, um, surrounding yourself in an environment where you where you're using all your five senses, you're soothing all your five senses. So, you know, think about your senses, smells, sounds, touch, um, you know, anything that you can see or taste. It's just surrounding yourself with those things that provide you comfort, that soothe those senses, I think is so important. Um, And again, just kind of doing those things a couple times a day, for three to five minutes a day can make a big impact on, um, stress and anxiety
0: and overwhelm. Thank you. Thank you so much for today. And I just want to say thank you for the work you're doing. When I think about that, folks are out there that might be suffering with really traumatic and very difficult situations and memories, experiences, um, that are impacting them, I hope that they feel some hope that there is um, really solid research and therapies, treatments available to them, Um, and that, you know, even these last exercises that you talked about, I think that we all could benefit from just in thinking about how we're processing our day-to-day, our stresses, and those experiences that are really, really challenging for us. Um, And that they actually sound just really enjoyable, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. I agree. Let's remember Mm -hmm. to be creative and be in nature and remember our bodies and breathe and connect with people. Um, Is there anything else um, maybe where people can get a hold of you If they wanted to contact you? Absolutely Um, they
1: can contact me at IPC which is the clinic I work at and the number is 763-416-4167 and um, definitely can leave me a voicemail and I will get back to them. Okay that sounds great thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me, and it's been an honor, and I really appreciate the invite.
0: Hi, everyone. Thanks again for listening. I need to alert you that this podcast is not meant to be a substitution for mental health treatment. Although we talk about psychotherapy, this is not your psychotherapy. If listeners are interested in pursuing therapy, I would refer you to psychologytoday.com backslash U.S., or your insurance carrier network.